from the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. Retirees Robert and Dagmar Linton eagerly embarked on a long-planned camping trip in the Pacific Northwest, and they promised their children they would be careful. The Lentons did not express concerns about their journey, but Dagmar made sure their wills and affairs were in order before they left home. Was she just cautious, or did she have a premonition something terrible would befall them? Her son and daughter would always wonder if their mother had concerns, and they would never know what exactly happened to their parents. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. Experts dispute whether they should classify Charles Sinclair as a serial killer. He suffered no guilt for taking a life, but he usually killed while robbing a store. He murdered not necessarily because he enjoyed killing, but because his murders provided a means to an end. On the other hand, authorities can find no practical reason for two of his murders, and they suspect he murdered others. I find Charles Sinclair no less of a monster than other serial killers I've covered. He was smart cunning, and ruthless. Sinclair operated by approaching a stranger, befriending him, observing his routine, killing him at the appropriate time, and then taking what he wanted. He often stood face to face with his victim and shot him in the head from a distance of only a few feet. Authorities do not believe Charles Sinclair murdered anyone in Alaska, but he cleverly hibernated in Alaska. He returned to Alaska between his crimes, making it nearly impossible for police to track him. He lived a quiet life in Alaska with his wife and two kids in the isolated farming community of Kenny Lake. His family claimed they had no idea what Charles did on his numerous business trips. In addition to hibernating between his murders and robberies, Sinclair frequently changed his name, confusing authorities who tried to pick up his trail. Police did have a description of Sinclair, though. Witnesses reported he was a large man with a gap between his two front teeth, a scar on his right hand, a southern accent, and an outgoing, friendly personality. This description, along with Sinclair's penchant for murdering coin shop owners and then stealing their valuable collections, helped investigators tracks Sinclair and his crimes across the United States. Charles Sinclair grew up in a small town in New Mexico. His father died when he was young, and to support Charles and his three siblings, his mother opened a coin laundromat. 
Perhaps Sinclair's fascination with coins began when he helped his mother sort and count coins at the laundry. As Sinclair grew older, he started collecting rare coins, and in the 1970s, he opened a coin shop in Hobbs, New Mexico, using his collection as merchandise. Sinclair's shop burned down in 1985, and although authorities opened an arson investigation, they did not find enough evidence to charge Sinclair with a crime. Charles, his wife Debbie, and their kids left Hobbs in the middle of the night, taking with them the coins and guns Sinclair had used as collateral for the loan for his shop. Sinclair also changed the family name from Sinclair to Ulrich, and Debbie and the children said they asked few questions about why they had to change their last name. The family moved to Deming, Washington for a few years, and eventually they continued to Alaska, where they settled in a cabin in Kenny Lake. Residents in Hobbs remembered Sinclair as a friendly, outgoing guy who could talk to anybody, and several of his hunting buddies were law enforcement officers. Soon after the Sinclairs moved to Washington, the state of New Mexico charged Debbie with embezzlement for failing to turn over more than $30,000 from the sale of hunting and fishing licenses through the store. On January 27, 1980, the body of David Sutton was found in his antique shop in Everett, Washington. He'd been shot in the head with a 38 caliber gun and robbed of an estimated $80,000 in silver dollars. Investigators believe Sutton was Sinclair's first victim. Five years later, on August 28, 1985, Thomas Rohr was killed during the robbery of his coin shop in Mishaka, Indiana. Due to the vast distance and long interval between the murders of Sutton and Rohr, police did not connect the crimes. In the summer of 1986, Robert and Dagmar Linton loaded their camper and headed out on an adventure. They planned to drive north along the Pacific coast from their home in Lodi, California, visit the World's Fair in Vancouver, Canada, and then return home by fall. They assured their two grown children they would check in often and provide an address once a week where their kids could forward their mail. All went well until the couple reached the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State and settled for a few days at a campground there. One evening, the Lentons made friends with a young couple at the campground and planned to get together with them the following day. The couple found it strange when the Lentons did not show up the next day, and they began to worry about the Lentons when they still had not returned to their camper several days later. The Lentons' pickup truck was missing, and there was no trace of Robert and Dagmar. The Lentons' children also began to worry when their mother did not place her weekly phone call to them. The Lentons' campground neighbors called the police to report their new friends missing, and Jefferson County, Washington Deputy Pete Pacini began looking into the strange disappearance. It seemed the Lentons took a drive in their truck and vanished into thin air. 
Not long after the couple disappeared, Pacini tracked activity on one of the Lenton's credit cards and discovered the card recently had been used to buy several items, including an expensive clarinet and a gold peso. When Pacini asked the store clerks to describe the individual who had used the card, they said he was a large, bearded, white male with a bandaged right hand, a gap-toothed smile, and a southern accent. A month after they vanished, authorities located the Lenton's pickup truck in a parking lot at the Seattle-Tacoma Airport. When Deputy Pacini inspected the vehicle, he found a large amount of dry blood between the bed and the cab of the pickup, and he knew something violent had happened in the truck. Tests on the blood yielded three blood types. Two of the types matched those of Robert and Dagmar Linton, and police suspected the third type belonged to their murderer. Pacini asked the bank to keep the Linton's credit card active while he traced its occasional use. The assailant charged random items on the card as he traveled across the northwestern part of the country. His movements baffled Pacini, but Pacini felt he was finally closing in on the gap-toothed stranger. Unfortunately, a TV news reporter learned about the missing couple and started asking questions. Pacini pleaded with the reporter to keep the story quiet a little while longer because he didn't want to spook the suspect. But the station aired the news anyway. When the story broke, the assailant immediately stopped using the credit card and vanished. On November 1, 1986, in Vacaville, California, the body of Reuben Williams was found in a creek bed. Someone had shot Williams in the head and robbed his coin shop. On July 1, 1987, the wife of Leo Cachette found her husband's body at his coin shop, Cachette Coins, in Spokane, Washington. Cachette also had been shot in the head. Coin shop owner Leroy Hoffman in Kansas City, Missouri, was murdered on March 12, 1988, and coins worth several thousand dollars disappeared from his shop. Authorities learned a friendly man, claiming to be a farmer, visited Hoffman's shop several times before the murder. The man told Hoffman he was interested in selling some coins. On the morning Hoffman died, he told his wife he planned to buy an extensive collection of coins that day. On May 4, 1990, a man shot Kelly Finnegan, the co-owner of the Legacy Coin Shop in Murray, Utah, in the head with a small caliber gun. But Finnegan survived the attack. Finnegan told investigators a man who called himself Jim Stockton visited his shop several times, asking questions while he perused the inventory of coins. Finnegan described Stockton as a polite, friendly, gap-toothed man with a Texas drawl. By the time the man appeared at the shop just before closing time on May 4th, Finnegan was comfortable with his presence, and he thought nothing of opening his safe to deposit some of his valuable coins before he closed the store for the day. While he stood by the safe, John Stockton approached him, and Finnegan heard him mumble something that sounded like, You dumb bastard. Finnegan turned his head to look at him, and Stockton shot him in the head and robbed the safe. 
Finnegan believes he survived the shooting because he turned his head at the last moment. The bullet pierced Finnegan's forehead but did not seriously wound him, and he remained conscious. He fell to the floor and pretended to be dead, and the man who called himself Jim Stockton calmly walked back and forth, stepping over his body while he stole valuable coins from the shop. When Deputy Pacini in Washington heard about the coin shop robbery in Murray, Utah, he wondered if the assailant might be the same man who had murdered the Lintons. He recalled the Lintons' killer had used their credit card to purchase a gold peso. Finnegan said the only thing he initially found strange about Stockton was that he never parked in front of the coin shop, but always left his car down the street and walked to the shop. Detectives found a fingerprint on the bullet Stockton shot at Finnegan, but the print matched nothing in their databases. Charles Sparbo, the owner of a coin shop in Billings, Montana, did not find Sinclair as charming as his other victims had. Sinclair set off warning bells in Sparbo's head. Sparbo and his son Jim chatted with Sinclair at the coin shop. Sinclair told them he was a farmer, and he was planning to sell his farm for $130,000 and wanted to invest the money in gold. After Sinclair left the shop, the elder Sparbo said the man did not have a farmer's hands. Instead of rough, calloused hands, Sparbo noted the stranger had smooth hands, like the hands of a banker. Sparbo also found it curious that the stranger parked his silver Pontiac a long distance from the shop and then walked to the coin store. On July 31, 1990, two months after the attempted murder of Kelly Finnegan in Utah, Sinclair entered the Treasure State Silver and Gold Coin Shop in Billings, Montana, and murdered Charles Sparbo, 60, and his assistant, Catherine Newstrom, 47. The killer shot both Sparbo and Newstrom in the head, execution style and then robbed the store of an estimated $54,000 in coins. Charles Sparbo's son Jim remembered the friendly gap-toothed stranger with the smooth hands and the Texas accent, and he described him for a police artist. Let me take a short break to thank everyone at the puzzle game app Best Fiends for supporting Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I appreciate you sponsoring my podcast. I love playing Best Fiends. The game relaxes me while it sharpens my mind. Its cheerful, colorful insect characters brighten even the darkest days. And the winter days here in Alaska are often dark. I sit down nearly every afternoon and play Best Fiends for a few minutes. It's my reward after I spend several hours taxing my brain researching and writing true crime, wildlife, or fiction. For those few minutes while I play the game, I don't have to think about anything except solving the puzzle and defeating the slugs. I am currently on level 615, titled Depth Charge. And I'm also involved in a side assignment where I am helping Sheriff Moose chase down bandit slugs. Yes, I know. I can't resist solving crimes even in my games. 
Manage the stress or boredom in your life. Best Fiends is a fun game. And one of the main things I really love about it is you can download it and play it anywhere offline. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Billings Detective Sergeant Jerry Archer immediately relayed over the police teletype the information about the murders of Charles Sparbo and Catherine Newstrom and the description of the suspect. A day later, Spokane police replied, saying they had a similar murder in 1987 when Leo Cachette was shot in the head and died in his coin shop. Then, police in Murray, Utah responded to the teletype, reporting the May 4, 1990 attempted murder of Kelly Finnegan in his coin shop. When Billings police sent out the composite sketch made with the aid of Jim Sparbo's description of the large, gap-toothed man, Spokane detectives reported that another coin shop owner believed the drawing resembled a customer who had visited his shop a few months earlier. This customer called himself J.C. Weir. A tipster phoned police and reported seeing a suspicious man leave the Treasure State Silver and Gold coin shop, and he wrote down the license plate number of the silver Pontiac the man was driving. When police checked the license plate, they learned the car was registered to Larry Ulrich in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Sheriff's deputies in Jackson Hole said the address on Ulrich's license did not exist, but they continued investigating the matter and discovered Ulrich's silver Pontiac parked at the airport in Jackson Hole. Inside the car, they found a 22 caliber handgun, a silencer, and coin wrappings from Sparbo's shop. Deputy Pete Pacini, the officer charged with the task of finding Robert and Dagmar Linton, had long ago run out of leads. The Lintons disappeared from the campground on the Olympic Peninsula in 1986, and the only clues Pacini had to their whereabouts were the reports of a large, bearded man using their credit card. Soon after a news story reported the stranger using the Linton's card, though, all activity on the card stopped, and the case went cold. Deputy Pacini saw the teletype from Billings describing the murders of Charles Sparbo and Catherine Newstrom in the coin shop, and he suspected the coin shop killer, as the police dubbed him, was the man who had murdered the Lintons. When Pacini ran the name Larry Ulrich through the Washington State database, he found a driver's license issued to Ulrich and learned he had once lived in Deming, Washington, 60 miles from where the Linton's killer had first used their credit card. Pacini also discovered Ulrich had two children who once attended school in Deming, so he called the principal of the high school and asked if he remembered the family. The principal said he believed the family moved to Alaska, and he recalled they put some of their belongings in storage before they left Deming. 
Pacini got a search warrant for the shed, and inside he found several of the items the Linton's murderer had bought with their credit card. Jackson Hole police learned that two days after the murders of Sparbo and Newstrom, the man they knew as Larry Ulrich flew from Jackson Hole to Anchorage, where his wife Debbie picked him up at the airport and then sold $15,000 worth of gold. Alaska state troopers tracked Ulrich to a rustic cabin with no indoor plumbing at remote Kenny Lake. Detective Sergeant Archer and another Billings, Montana detective joined the Alaska State Troopers and a multi-state SWAT team to converge on Ulrich's house. Troopers did not want to trap Ulrich's wife and children in the middle of a gunfight. So they called Ulrich and told him they needed to serve him papers on an unrelated matter and asked him if he could meet them in front of the Kenny Lake General Store. Ulrich agreed and headed to the store. When he turned into the parking lot of the store, police surrounded his vehicle and took him into custody. Troopers found a gold pocket watch stolen from Kelly Finnegan's store as well as other stolen items in Ulrich's house but Ulrich refused to admit to the crimes. When investigators ran Ulrich's name and fingerprints through their databases, they were shocked to learn the man they had in custody was Charles Sinclair, not Larry Ulrich. The real Larry Ulrich was in prison in New Mexico and had once been Charles Sinclair's friend. When Sinclair and his family left New Mexico after his coin shop burned, the family changed their last name to Ulrich and Charles Sinclair stole his friend's identity. Sinclair was incarcerated in Anchorage, Alaska, and held on a $500,000 bond, while Montana authorities requested his extradition to stand trial for the murders of Charles Sparbo and Catherine Newstrom. Utah authorities charged Sinclair with attempted homicide and aggravated robbery for his attack on Kelly Finnegan and the robbery of Finnegan's store. Sinclair's wife, Debbie, was extradited to New Mexico, where she pleaded not guilty to embezzlement. Authorities did not implicate Debbie or the Sinclair children in any of the murders. On October 30, 1990, while authorities in Washington, Montana, Utah, California, Missouri, and Indiana waited to bring Charles Sinclair to justice, Sinclair died of heart failure in an Anchorage jail cell, apparently taking an overdose of his blood pressure medicine. The coroner ruled Sinclair's death an accident, but the investigators who followed his trail and finally captured him believed Sinclair committed suicide. Deputy Pacini said, Charles Sinclair took the coward's way out. Authorities are confident Charles Sinclair murdered at least nine individuals and possibly more. The detectives who followed closely on his trail believe he killed because he enjoyed it. They point out he could have robbed the coin stores without killing the owners, but he seemed to enjoy the game of gaining the trust of the owners before he murdered and robbed them.
Thank you for listening, and thank you to my patrons for your support. In addition to writing about true crime, I am also an Alaska wilderness mystery author, and I've written four novels. In Murder Over Kodiak, a float plane mysteriously explodes over Kodiak Island, killing the pilot and his five passengers. In The Fisherman's Daughter, a serial killer stalks the residents of the island, and authorities rush to catch him before more women die. And in my most recent novel, Carlick Bones, two young men set out for a hunting trip on Kodiak, expecting the adventure of a lifetime. But instead, they find themselves in the middle of a terrifying nightmare. Read one of my novels and take a trip to beautiful, dangerous, mysterious Kodiak Island. For more information about my books and where you can find them, please check the show notes or search for my name or the titles of my books on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online bookstores. I will be back soon with another edition of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier.